All right. Welcome back to Breaking the Law. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Uh, Our purpose is simple. The traditional approach to law is breaking people because the law is broken, and so it's time to break the law. Today, we're taking a deeper dive into how the law is breaking people. Uh, We're really pleased to be joined by uh, two very distinguished guests today. Uh, This is also our first international episode, so very excited about that. Um, uh, Our first guest is uh, Janet Thompson-Jackson. Janet is a proud graduate of Howard University School of Law in Washington, D.C. She practiced law in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. before directing a nonprofit organization that provided transitional housing, case management, and job training and placement services to homeless and at-risk families. Janet works, teaches, and speaks internationally. She has taught law for over 20 years, including at my alma mater, Washburn Law, and currently serves as well-being, diversity, and inclusion officer for the University of, uh, I'm going to mess this up, Groningen. Did I, did I say that even mm-hmm. close to right? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Faculty of Law in the Netherlands. Um, She is also the founder of Well Law, a program designed to help law students and lawyers develop tools uh, to manage the stresses inherent in law school and law practice and to thrive. Uh, Janet believes that wellness and justice are intertwined uh, and as a voice for wellness and as and uh, and excuse me, for voice for wellness as justice. Uh, Janet, welcome to the show. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Thank you. No, that was plenty. Thank you very much. And it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Danielle Hall, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Danielle has served as the executive director for the Kansas Lawyers Assistance Program uh, since December 2019. Uh, in addition to overseeing the daily operations, she administers a variety of programs for lawyers and law students who need assistance due to a substance use, uh, mental health, or law practice management related issue. Uh, she currently serves as the policy chair for the Institute for Wellbeing and Law uh, and serves on the executive committee of the Kansas Lawyer Wellbeing Task Force. She is also an active member in the ABA Law Practice Division, having served on several committees and is a regular contributor to the ABA Law Practice Magazine. Uh, Welcome, Danielle. Thank you for joining us. Uh, do yes, you have anything you'd like you for, to add? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, super excited to be here with you today and looking forward to our discussion that we're about to have. Yeah, well, we're really excited for it uh, as well. And Ashlyn, our co-host... Yes. Hi. Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Ashlyn Linscog. I um, am so stoked to be here and chat with all of you. I um, am an attorney. I have been practicing since 2015 um, and um, am a lifelong learner and just trying to be adaptive in this crazy world that uh, all of these unprecedented times that we keep experiencing. So I think these conversations are so relevant and I'm just excited to participate in them. Uh, and I'm Sam Foreman. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I do law stuff uh, and learning to try to be a, a better human being along the way. So, um, well, our topic today is is on how the law is breaking people. And as we've talked about uh, in our first episode, you know, when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the law industry and often in particular how the traditional approach to law is breaking people. Um, and when we're talking about traditional law, we're talking about the model that has largely been used and, and has experienced very few changes um, really over the last hundred years or so. Um, very tight hierarchical cultures, you know, lots of internal politics, lots, lots of you know, barriers to advancement and other, other items like that. And we'll go into that in more detail. Um, as we get into today's episode, but I wanted to start by sharing um, a little bit from a piece that I found on Above the Law, and it it, it talks about um, a sabbatical program that a big law firm has used, um, <clears throat> and I believe they adopted it in about 2018, 2019, so they've been using it for a couple of years, and this article was from 2020, and I just want to read this quote that just really really, really grabbed me and then a little bit more of the background on it and kind of use that to kind of set up our conversation for today. Uh, And this is from a partner um, at this law firm. Uh, The quote is, it's the most amazing and underrated perk to be able to do things like that instead of waiting until you retire. Uh, And that quote was in response to kind of commenting on the wonderful things that he was able to do during his three-month sabbatical from the firm, like taking his teenage daughter 
um, to the movies at noon. Um, and, uh, and being able to take a, you know, take an extended trip internationally. And so I really struggled with, okay, is this type of a program a sign of progress in the law or is this really a sign of how it's breaking people? And I ended up kind of going towards the former because I think as I look at this, um, I see a lot of problems. I'm just really curious what what everyone else's reactions to it are and what this type of reaction that he had to being able to do normal things and the context in which it was delivered of, hey, now here I'm taking this, you know, extended absence from my work, you know, that then allows me to be able to do these normal people things um, and that being something that's celebrated. What what does that say about kind of the mindset and the position that you know, the traditional approach to law has put so many people in. Um, yeah, and I'm curious, I'm curious for everyone else's thoughts. I have lots of thoughts, but I talk too much as we've already established, so. You know, um, my initial impression is it's kind of a gut check for me uh, as someone with young children who um, has had, at least historically, to make choices when it, I feel like I'm in a position to, to choose priorities or to make choices. But I'm with you. I think it does show progress um, in the need to recognize that we need to experience our lives, not just survive them, um, even as lawyers, even as other people rely on us. But um, I also think it's, it still makes me feel a little sad that uh, it felt like someone had to be granted permission to take his high school daughter to a movie at noon and that we had to create this whole, you know, complex leave system. So someone felt like that was something they could experience that that kind of makes me a little sad that um, that is truly a reality for people. Danielle, I'm curious your thoughts on this type of a program and what it says about where the legal industry is and where it's going. Right. Um, you know, I have mixed feelings about it, I think. Um, on one end, you, you know, it, it serves somewhat as a positive because you see mm -hmm. a firm instituting a policy that is different, that allows somebody to take an extended leave period and creates an environment where that is okay to do. But at the same time, I, you know, I get uh, what both of you are saying with, you know, the opposite effect of this is, that this also implies that we need these extended periods mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. And so what's creating the situation and circumstances to where in order to get rest, relaxation, do normal things that I think others do, uh, you know, what's leading to that point in order to get us to a specific place where we say, okay, I don't need just a day here or a day there, but I need an extended leave at this time to just do normal things uh, that one would do. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? How about you, Janet? What thoughts do you have to add? Yeah, I think that um, on the positive side, it really uh, shows us that there's a growing awareness mm -hmm. that there is a need to change things. And it also shows an effort to change things. Um, we're going to try to do something. I think that uh, I think that the something isn't necessarily the fix. Uh, because my guess is that this person is going to go back to work and be completely, you know, feel like they're on a treadmill again, mm -hmm. feel like they, um, you know, oh, those, those three months have disappeared into my memory because, uh, mm -hmm. and I don't know when I'm going to get those again. And so if we give this time and but we don't change the system then it's kind of putting a band-aid on this big wound mm -hmm. and i think that what we need to do is to really look at as you said sam earlier how the legal profession and the practice of law is structured how are we doing this and and um and why are we doing it this way other than we've always done it this way right. and how can we integrate some uh, well-being, how can we integrate some well-being support into the system itself? Yeah, no, I think that those are excellent thoughts. Um, this particular sabbatical program, and this was another thing that struck me, was designed to become available to attorneys after they'd spent at least seven years at that firm, and then to become available on six-year increments 
afterwards, which I think to, you know, your observations about this is a positive that people are aware of the need and that they're taking action. I think that that to me speaks volumes. I think questions that I have viewing it in this context of here's something that to me seems like a really extreme sort of step of, hey, we're going to either force you to take three months off or we're going to, you know, make it available for you to take this three month period off. Um, to me seems like a something that that acknowledges the severity of the circumstances in which attorneys are finding themselves to where this feels like, hey, this is what we need for people to start doing. But it also raises questions for me of like this is happening at firms that have PTO policies, you know, who have the ability for attorneys to take time off. What is happening in the process that people are either taking time off or not taking time off, being pressured not to take time off or taking the token, I'm out of the office, but I'm, but I'm really available for whatever, whenever, any hour of the day, um, to the point where this is part of the solution for wellness is that that's not working. And so we need something else. Um, and I'm curious, and I don't know, I don't have any other insight into this firm other than this very short piece. And I have not picked on them by name on purpose because I, I don't want to be rude. <laughs> Although I would, I'll link the article and that will probably be enough. <laughs> you know, but. something that strikes me that you said that I think is so important to maybe, and maybe this is another industry, it's just this happens to be the only one I've ever spent a significant professional amount of time in. But, you know, you could have an unlimited, especially as a lawyer who's under a billable hour model um, and a production-based model, you could give me all of the available PTO in the world and make it completely available to me. But when my income is measured by production, um, I, there, I could take a week off, but only so that I can pack another week full to make up the difference. There is no bank of billable PTO hours that I can fill a gap with to say, okay, next week I'm going to go to Florida with my family, but don't worry, this isn't going to mess with my production because we have this pool of billable hours I can borrow. I mean, so the PTO, you know, is, mm -hmm. is kind of a, um, a theoretical, I think, for lawyers who are um, at least being measured on a, a billable hour model or a production-based model like that because you're, you just, it, I know in my mind when I was under a model like that, I thought, well, if I take today off, if I'm not feeling well and I take today off, I have to work Saturday or I have to make it up next month because my hours will dip. And if my hours dip, then I'm never going to catch up. And if I don't catch up, then I'm not going to be up for partner. And it just spirals. And so um, I just think it's, uh, you know, saying we have unlimited PTO. Well, that's neat, but I don't know as effective as they think it is, or maybe it's exactly as effective as they want it to be. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, I think on top of that, on top of the billable hour with the way the practice of law is structured generally, I mean, you take into account things like deadlines, court systems, motions practice, uh, that also contributes to this feeling of I can't take leave or I can't take time off. Yeah. You know, sometimes I say we talk about teenagers and they have this FOMO, the fear of missing out. But I feel like the same is applicable to lawyers. Mm. We have that fear of missing out on missing, you know, something within our email inbox. Or we have the fear of missing out that if I'm not here, then am I going to be considered the next time the go around is for considering partnership. And so I think the way that it is structured, it lends itself to that fear of I just don't have the ability to take the leave time as a result. And I think in addition to that, in addition to all of the things that Danielle just mentioned, um, there also is the perception, and I want to call it the perception because I don't think that it's always true, the perception that the client wants us to be available, wants the lawyer mm. to be available yeah. all the time. And I actually don't think that, the, I'm sure for some clients it's true. I don't <laughs> think that it's always true. Um, because I think that some of these clients are taking time and living their lives. <laughs> and um, I do think that there's pressure there, but I think that we also need to go back and re-examine some of the uh, some of the reasons, some of the the rationale that that uh, we're using for creating these structures. And you know, is it really is it really true? Is it necessary? And if it was true twenty years ago or even ten years ago, is it true today? Mm -hmm. Because companies now who are, especially since the pandemic, companies are doing things differently. I mean, I just read multiple articles about major companies who are now embracing the, you know, remote work. 
when CEOs who said, I'll never let my my employees work remotely. And then the pandemic hit and they realized, oh, okay, we were more productive or we didn't lose productivity. And so it's okay. And so now people in other industries, you know, might have a little bit more balance. And actually some law firms are doing this too. So there are some law firms who are really trying to respond to this. But I think that we have to challenge some of the assumptions and rationales that we have, or not we, I should say that the that the profession um, is using to keep this structure that really is breaking people down. Totally. No, I think that's that's so well put, and I think it's such a great um, a great example of just kind of tying all these concepts together. You've got the incentive structure in law firms that drives people's fear of missing out on things that then is compounded or fueled by people's perceptions about what clients want or what their partners want or what those expectations are. And those are often, you know, never pushed back on, never, you know, challenged or never really properly understood. And so there's all of these factors that are at play. And um, I think where we, you know, really, really badly get adrift as a, as an industry is we've taken you know, our entire business model and we've, we've built it based on the currency of time. And so we're constantly trying to cash out on our time and as a result have very little margin for anything else because time is the only thing that we've chosen to sell. And so to maximize our productivity and our profitability, we must sell as much time as possible, leaving very little of that resource in our attention that goes along with it to thinking about like, are we even selling something that people want to buy? Like that constant availability, you know, that, that addiction to being, you know, on alert at all times, you know, to avoid missing out on something, which for the record, I have never done um, <laughs> more than a lot. Um, uh-huh. But um, I, you know that that just that strikes me a lot of that that we're not making enough time um, to really figure out like how to just constantly figure out how to do it better. Which so many other industries they're always doing that, um, but it seems like the law frequently is not. Um, yeah, but. Um, yeah, you had something to say. Oh, no. Okay. Nope, nothing to add. <laughs> well, I don't have anything else to say. I'm out of ideas. I thought your ideas were good for what it's worth. Thank you. You're welcome. Are we here? Yep. I think on, on this next piece. Right okay. Here. Yep. Um, so um, one of the things when we talk about that the, the law is breaking people, um, it's important, and, and we kind of touched on this in the intro episode, but who... Who, when we talk about the laws breaking people, who are we talking about? Um, and first, and probably most obviously, uh, is that it's breaking attorneys who are practicing law. Um, um, there are some burnout statistics that I think are so interesting. And, um, you know, I've heard the word burnout used more recently than I probably ever had um, before. And it's probably based on a lot of things. But these statistics... Um, say two-thirds of legal professionals have experienced burnout. Um, And the World Health Organization defines burnout as a syndrome resulting from stress in the workplace that hasn't been managed successfully. They further further classified burnout into three dimensions, exhaustion or depleted energy, general negativism on one's occupation, and professional efficiency is reduced. Um, So three kind of different dimensions that people may experience when they're experiencing burnout. Um, in 2021, according to Bloomberg Law, over 50% of attorneys surveyed reported feeling burned out. That's a that's a significant number. I think it's lawyers. low. You think they're unreporting? <laughs> they're underreporting? I, th- I think I think lawyers lie to make ourselves look and feel better. Sometimes. We are not burnout. We love it. We are yes. having so much fun with all the working <laughs> we're doing. Um, symptoms include persistent exhaustion, decreased performance. Um, detachment, reduced motivation, emotional roller coasters, uh, physical symptoms can be, you know, headaches, insomnia, forgetfulness, uh, lack of satisfaction, those types of things, which um, I, I think can 
it's like cyclical, right? You're experiencing burnout. And so you're having trouble at work being motivated and you're struggling in all these different ways, which reduces productivity significantly. And so then you are stressed because you can't get anything done. And man, it's a cycle that is uh, scary. And um, so, you know, before I move on, there are there are other areas in which I think that the law is, is certainly breaking lawyers. But what what do you guys think? What are you seeing both in what you do and in your experiences as it relates to lawyer burnout? I'll let Danielle start with that because I know yeah. she's deep into that right now. Yeah, yeah. talk to right. us, yeah. Danielle. You know, I'll, I'll say that from the perspective of lawyers assistance programs, and I can speak sort of nationally, uh, that the trends as far as those seeking assistance for burnout, uh, you know, it was recognized, we've heard that term probably more than we have in previous years. And I think lawyers are starting to connect with what it is versus what it is that they're actually experiencing and recognizing that they're needing assistance in this area. So that's one of the areas just nationally, we have seen a huge increase of of the lawyer population seeking assistance for those types of services with the traditional laps that are sometimes, you know, sometimes we get put in those categories of only servicing substance use disorder. But on the other hand, you know, we service a lot of different mental health conditions, including burnout. But I think in addition, you know, to burnout, we're seeing kind of those things that get connected to burnout that if we don't take care of it, that eventually lead to things like anxiety and depression and maybe even that substance use disorder. Um, so I can attest to what we see here in Kansas and what we've seen nationally is this, yeah, we have a large population of burned out lawyers. And I would add to that, um, that we have to look beyond the lawyers. Uh, what we're finding is that legal staff are mm -hmm. burned out. Mm -hmm. And, and I would say, you know, we have to go back to law school because what we're seeing in the legal profession, once you start practicing starts in law school and we have mm -hmm. the statistics on that. And so unfortunately, um, it actually used to be until uh, now that we have new data after the pandemic, before the pandemic and 2019 statistics told us that law students came into law school as um, with the general psychological profile as the rest of the public and like less, uh, lower than 10% experiencing depression. By the time they got out of law school, it was up to 40%, up to 40%. And so something was happening in those law school years. And I say was because it's still happening. But what we're finding now post pandemic is that students are coming in with a higher rate of anxiety and depression mm -hmm. coming into law school, but it's still increasing in law school. And that trajectory continues at least for the first 10 years of practice. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so what we're seeing in the <clears throat> profession starts in law school. And it's not just the law students. Um, the law students are absolutely uh, experiencing this, but it affects the entire environment. And so law professors, staff, um, everyone is stressed. And that creates this container of, of stress that we're walking around in. And one of the problems is that it becomes our normal. Mm -hmm. And so we think it's actually normal to live with this level of stress and to go into a workplace where we're feel, filled with all this tension and stress and anxiety, and we're in this fight, flight, or freeze mode all the time. It becomes normal when it's not, not only is it not normal, Danielle talked about what it can lead to beyond all of those things to actual physical um, ailments, heart attacks, mm -hmm. and uh, all sorts of chronic conditions. And one thing I want to mention about burnout, and we are hearing that word a lot, it is actually a term that is used in Europe a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm in Europe right now. And um, in the Netherlands, burnout is a medical diagnosis that mandates an employer to give time off, paid time mm -hmm. off, and to make sure that the person has the appropriate medical or mental health care, wow. medical including mental health care that is needed. Now we still need to do a lot with burnout prevention, getting you know, preventing getting to that point. But I think it's huge 
that it's recognized as something that needs the, the, the person needs time to heal. And generally speaking, when people come back to work, they come back staggered. They don't come back full on 40, 40, right. 60, however many hours <laughs> you were working before. You stagger it so that you are building up your res- your resilience again. Mm-hmm. So there are things like that, that there are models for how we can incorporate things uh, into the system, but um, we have, there's so much to tackle. There's, we have such a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious when, in your experience, when we're using a medical diagnosis for burnout um, and, and saying this is something that needs to be treated, do we do we see that as an effective reduction of the stigma around saying, um, you know, this I'm experiencing these symptoms, I'm experiencing these things that that no, this is a this is a medical diagnosis that needs treatment as opposed to, you know, maybe you just can't hang, which is just not true. It, but truly, you know, probably more so what we hear when we don't equate it to a medical issue that we're experiencing. Do, do you think it reduces stigma to give it that level of, um, oh, what's the right word? Um, like, not approval, but, you know, this is a real thing. This is this really hurt people. Yeah, Ashlyn, I think that it it does. I think that it is a step in that direction. Yeah. Because if someone said, I had a heart attack, and therefore I need to take time off, or I broke my leg, and I have to take time off, we don't think twice about it. What can I do for you? I'll bring you a meal. Right. You know, it is supported in mm-hmm. so many different ways, including being supported through the um, health system and insurance system, right? Right. But when we have a system where mental health is treated differently, it is in a different category, and people don't um, see it as a legitimate reason to to take. I mean, think about people teasing and saying, "I'm taking a mental health day. Don't tell anyone." Mm-hmm. Right? That's like shamefully. It's shamefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Um, then yeah so i think that i think that it be there are some downsides i think but i think that it being a, a medical diagnosis having a status mm-hmm. that says it that it that legitimizes it i think can be helpful for sure yeah i'd agree with that that giving it that legitimacy i think is important um when people can recognize and identify that okay so what i am feeling is real right this is mm-hmm. not something that's made up right. it's an actual real thing that i'm experiencing mm-hmm. and it i'm not supposed to be experiencing it i think that's the other aspect of this right because when we begin to have conversations with our colleagues about how we feel we're feeling really overwhelmed we're feeling really burned out and when the response you hear back is oh that's normal that's just the practice of law right yeah. mm-hmm. it takes away yeah. really for some what it is that you're actually feeling and so they go back and they say okay this this i guess is what i'm supposed to feel so right. this is just normal Um, So I'm I'm just going to continue to practice this way versus actually recognizing what it is that they are experiencing. The fact that there is a medical diagnosis out there for it. Yeah. Normalizing the sickness. And Mm -hmm. I think gaslighting people into feeling like this is what you're supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And the I mean, this is just part of what you signed up for. Mm -hmm. You know, suck it up, buttercup. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I've got a question for each of you. Um, How many of you know or suspect that you've worked with? someone who has experienced severe burnout or some other mental challenge in the practice of law, like who you've worked with directly. Just, yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, I know I have. How, how about you, Janet? A- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can think of every legal environment that I've worked in mm-hmm. and, and, um, and I know that to be true, you know, including when I was a young attorney and it, it was me, all I had to do was look yeah. in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I would have the same response, you know, colleagues, of course, every single legal job that I've had in my career mm-hmm. and recognizing it in myself at certain stages as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Ashlyn and I have both either experienced or worked with folks that have experienced things. I think a, a related follow up question is in those places where you could see and identify that other people or that you yourself were experiencing that. Um, do you think that those folks felt safe to be able to struggle with that? 
do you think that they felt the safety and the support to be able to be like, hey, I've got a problem. I need help. I can speak. From... I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Please. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, I don't, I think that the majority, and actually statistics support mm-hmm. that the majority of lawyers do not feel safe mm-hmm. in saying that they have, do not feel safe in taking time off to um, manage mental health issues. Mm-hmm. That was the question that was put right. to to lawyers, and they um, and the majority do not feel safe. And I think that that has not changed at all. I think that that would have been the answer when I was when I was practicing. Um, there is, I think, a stigma, and even beyond the stigma. And I think that the stigma is changing because we are talking about, I mean, we're doing the show, we're talking about mental health openly much more than Mm -hmm. we used to. But beyond the stigma, I think that it is just the fear of what am I going to lose? Yes. What is this going to cost me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think And the stakes are high for people. The stakes can be very high. And this is not only people who are working in high paying jobs. People who are doing legal aid, who yep. are getting paid far less than they should be getting paid, who are dealing with trauma, who are experiencing vicarious and secondary trauma because they are dealing with trauma on a regular basis, are some of the people, and I do workshops, I do trainings for people in these populations all the time. And more than anyone, I hear them say, I can't take time off because I don't know what's going to happen to my client. And I really can't rely on anybody else to do it because everybody Mm -hmm. else is in the same position I'm in. Yep. And so it's not that the stakes are so high. I don't want to give up this wonderful, you know, salary that I'm making. It's that people are so committed to the jobs that they're doing, to the clients that they're helping, to the change that they hope that they're making in society, that and through the through the legal system, that they really fear that if they get off of that treadmill, that it's going to stop. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to. I do think that there's a lack of support. There's a lack of funding for. Uh, for legal aid, for nonprofit uh, uh, legal services. There's so many ways that we need to address this. Absolutely. I think Janet hit the nail on the head here with talking about some of the structures that we've already identified, right? The legal perfection makes us ripe, uh, they Mm -hmm. say, for burnout when you think about it, whether that's in private practice, whether that's working in government, working in the public sector, you know, everybody has these situations due to the structure of law that just makes us ripe to go down a path to experience this. When you talk about caseloads, for instance, as Janet already mentioned, right, you talk about working maybe in an environment where you feel like you don't have the support, where you don't feel like you have the resources that you need to do your job, where you have too many cases that you can't keep up with and you start feeling the sense of overwhelm, experiencing the trauma of your clients, um, you know, just the sheer fact that the justice system is adversarial in nature, right? We're Mm -hmm. advocating against each other on a regular basis. And so you combine all of these things and you've got the perfect storm and perfect combination. Yeah, not to mention the added concern about your license, right? You, I, I can't let any balls drop. I can't, I can't right. risk someone saying I didn't give it my all or that I didn't give it a hundred percent. I have all these ethical considerations. I have duties to my client. If I take five minutes, uh, then I'm going to miss something and something. And and you know, you're at least I am constantly thinking. Okay, I just want to make sure I'm checking all of my boxes and doing all the things I need to do because I certainly don't want to be responsible for something not going the way that it's supposed to. And I think, you know, the ethical side of things, the licensing side of things and the the, the amount that lawyers have to take on to represent their clients uh, for sure can add to that. And I think, um, you know, like like you both pointed out, it's more, it's not just the burnout, it's the what untreated burnout can lead to, the, the both the physical, the mental. So um, some of these things that I think are also so important, um, um, more statistics. And I think 
uh, Sam indicated, we'll put these resources in mm-hmm. the notes. So if I yeah. don't quote them, I'm not making them up, I promise. Um, but um, so lawyers who report feeling a high level of stress are 22 times more prone to suicidal ideation than their low stress counterparts. I mean, that's, you know, uh, about 4.2% of U.S. adults fall into the category of endorsing suicidal thoughts from a clinical perspective. With lawyers, that rate is 8.5%. Um, and um, yeah, it, it the, there's a quote here that says, if you look five to 10 years down the road, kind of t- to your point, uh, the people entering the profession appear to have significantly worse mental health. So we're, ex- how do we say this? Exacerbating yeah. the existing problem by creating more problem. It's just... Um, it's it's scary and it's scary for you know my I have a four year old and she's she tells people I'm gonna be a lawyer and I'm like oh, I don't know girlfriend you know you got a lot of time to figure it out but man it's not it's for sure not the the most stress free free job we could have selected um yeah and then also uh, and to the extent um, you know you guys have thoughts on that as well. Um, one of the other issues that you raised is obviously the substance abuse side and how do we cope if we don't have good coping skills to cope with the stress that we're not treating because we can't talk about it. Um, how are we coping? Um, and I found this interesting article um, out of Florida, but it says problem drinking among lawyers is three times higher than the rate of the general public. Um, and that article was specifically focused on a young lawyer problem um, younger lawyers having real problems with um, drinking. And um, I think, you know, it's, again, we're not treating the problem. We're not talking about the problem. We're not learning coping skills about the problem. So we're just, you know, all out here making crazy choices, trying to survive. Um, I don't know. What are you guys seeing? Uh, Danielle, substance abuse issues on the rise too? You know, I would say those are probably the the issues that we have identified in the practice for a really long time. Yeah. I think prior to the the studies that that you had mentioned, um, you know, we kind of knew it. We just didn't have the numbers yet. And then, yeah. you know, 2016, 17 comes along and we get confirmation um, on some of those studies that were conducted at that time. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's a real easy, slippery slope if you think about it. I think about when I was in private practice. Practice and and when I worked for a couple of different other legal departments, just on the days that I was stressed and and maybe sometimes I would come home, what would be the first thing I would say? Oh, I had such a stressful day. I pour me a glass of wine with dinner, right? Mm-hmm. And so you do that, but then for some of us, the next thing you know, you're doing that every single night, and it's a really easy habit to get into when you don't have those coping mechanisms. When you're not identifying why are you turning to the glass of wine at night. And what could you be doing differently instead? Um, and not to mention the culture that we just have surrounding drinking itself, you know, firm activities, uh, bar association activities, those activities are often associated with alcohol. Um, and, you know, I'm out here saying in order to be more inclusive, right, we should be thinking about other ways to incorporate other fun activities. And it doesn't always have to be always so drawn with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, being inclusive for those that are in recovery, but also being inclusive just generally for those who just don't drink. I often talk about, I often joke and I say, you know what, I'd rather eat my calories than drink them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's always my response. You know, when people ask me, well, how come you're not drinking? But that's the other aspect of this is as a culture, we sort of lead to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I decide not to drink at a bar association function. And what happens? Like 20 people in the room are like, why aren't you drinking? Well, mm-hmm. why is it any of your business? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, there's a lot of things that I think are contributing to this aspect of just how, what a volume of lawyers we have that are really generally suffering from substance use disorder um, and, you know, who's seeking help, who's not seeking help and and why are they not seeking help? Yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, cause we've talked and there's so much de- more depth that we could go into even beyond what we've covered on how, you know, the law is breaking attorneys, but I want to talk a little bit more about you know, non-attorneys or non-legal professionals that the law is breaking as well. Um, and I think substance abuse is a great, you know, kind of segue into that of when an attorney has, you know, gone from that place of, um, 
you know, starting to have a problem to now they're burnout or they're struggling with their mental health and now they're self-medicating through substance use. Um, you know, that along with all these other things that we've talked about that has an impact on the people around them. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, how is the law breaking and how we're approaching it as an industry? You know, how is that breaking people even beyond the direct participants in the legal system? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think you said it, Sam. It, it um, it's it's very difficult to work in that environment and not be affected by it. And even though lawyers do a lot of their own um, administrative work and and typing and everything themselves, um, there's still a heavy reliance on support staff. Mm-hmm. And also on paralegals and right. um, people who are other legal professionals mm-hmm. who I, I actually coach someone who is the accountant for a law firm. And the stress that she experiences, she's not dealing with the clients. You know, mm-hmm. she is not uh, she's not a lawyer. And so she's she's not having any face to face with the clients or, or going to court or anything. Um, but the level of stress that she deals with from being in, she works in a couple of different legal environments as an independent contractor. And, um, she's as stressed as any lawyer I know. And it's being in the environment and it's, and it's having the pressure. They still, people still have pressures to perform. I like to say, and I think that the legal profession is special, and the statistics tell us that the legal profession is special, and and mm-hmm. and things are happening happening at a disproportionate level. But most high performing professionals deal with a lot of the same issues. So we see this across industries. It's just that the the legal profession is doing it really really well right now. Um, We're very and efficient. The medical profession. It's interesting because it used to be that the doctors were at the the top of the charts and the legal profession is actually starting to exceed what the what the medical profession is doing in Mm. in terms of dysfunction because the medical profession is starting to address it more directly and more aggressively than the legal profession is having said that i really do want to give credit to um a lot of uh uh entities in the legal profession that are trying to do something. Um, Danielle is on the board of IWill and um, and the ABA is is doing a lot. There are a lot of local bar associations um, that are really, really trying to address this. Almost every bar association is doing some kind of wellness CLE and things like that. And um, so I, there are efforts, but this, the problem is so bad that it's it really is going to take an overhaul of how we approach this to really really make a difference um but i do want to recognize that efforts are being made and some changes are being made no that's great and i think it's it's so important not to lose sight of that um because the the problem can become overwhelming i mean just Mm -hmm. looking at the magnitude um I go back to that that story that I shared at the beginning of our conversation on this, and there's a character in there that, you know, I glossed over the first time I read this story because I was focused on the experience of the attorney. And that attorney that went on sabbatical, one of the things that was part of his highlight was his being able to take his daughter to the movies. And I just had to pause as I was thinking about this going, what what does that speak about their relationship and their experience Mm -hmm. that's been created? Uh, And it reminded me of my own. Um, My wife commented to me a couple of years ago, or actually it wouldn't have been a couple of years ago, but, but maybe within about the last year and a half, she was talking about the reaction that our two year old, he's now two year old um, uh, has when I come home um, and he's just really excited. And it's like, daddy. And he runs, runs to the door um, I promise I'm not going to cry on two episodes in a row, but <laughs> even if I did, I wouldn't judge myself for it. Um, judge me here. Uh, but my wife said it's just remarkable how some of the changes have impacted the relationship that I have with my kids 
because mm-hmm. the reaction that my two-year-old has when I come home is much different than the reaction that our now six-year-old had when I came home at a similar age. And so much of that is because during those same periods of time, for one of them, I was there much more than for the other. Um, and I think that that just speaks volumes too. There's so much of this conversation about how the law is breaking people that I think is tied up in culture. It's tied up in how we design our work. Um, but it also speaks to our choices mm-hmm. um, and the individual choices that you know all of us as participants in the legal industry are making. Um, and I think what I'm so encouraged by is that I see people recognizing and prioritizing that, hey, I see what this is doing. I don't want that, so I'm going to do something different. Um, and that gives me just a ton of hope. Um, I know we're about out of time um, for today, but um, does anyone have any kind of last thoughts as far as you know who the you know the the law industry is breaking in terms of its traditional approach and how it's having that impact? I would only add, um, because given any opportunity to say things, I will say them, um, is that um, I don't think it's serving all of our clients uh, as Mm. well as we think it has. And um, I think the traditional approach that we think, uh, you know, kind of like the point that we made earlier, um, healthy boundary setting is good for them and it is good for us uh, and it is good for the community and it is good for the industry. And I can't give my best legal mind if I'm spread thin. And if you want the best of me, client, if you want me to be thoughtful and creative and approachable in the way that I can sol- help you solve these problems, um, I have to get some rest or I have to pour into my family or I have to you know, take the weekend off and I'm not available during the weekend hours. And um, in my experience, clients are responsive to those boundary setting. They're like, wait, you are a human being who has human needs? Wow, it's shocking. So, um, but I think, um, you know, our families, certainly the lawyers and the staff themselves, but I think those people that we are serving are better served when we're whole and you know it's like that freight that saying where you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself so that you can care for anybody else around you and i think that's true here too for sure yeah well um, i don't think think there's anybody it doesn't touch you're so right you're so right and especially in a in a work in what we do is sort of a pillar of a a communities it's a pillars of of not that we're, you know, overstating our own importance here, but, you know, we're talking about really important stuff. So I think you're right. I think it touches everything. Well, thank you folks for joining us for today's episode. I think we've got a couple closing thoughts, um, a couple of key points, key practical tips or challenges um, from today's uh, episode. Uh, Janet, Danielle, do you all have any any kind of nuggets that you'd like or tips or challenges that you'd like to share with folks that you hope they'll, they'll take away from today's episode? You know, I'll just throw this out there, you know, given what we talked about today, you know, if you know, a listener feels like they are breaking due to the law um, and the practice. It's okay to not be okay. I can't stress that mm-hmm. enough. Um, and, you know, in the world that I live and work in uh, every single day, we always say that reaching out for help is a sign of strength and not a weakness. And given some of those statistics that were shared today, it's pretty clear that maybe what you're experiencing as an individual, there are others that are right there with you experiencing that and it's real. Um, And so there are resources available for you. If you find yourself in one of those situations where you need some resources, you need counseling, you need advice. And so I just encourage those that feel like they're breaking to reach out to their lawyer's assistance program, to reach out to maybe even finding a clinician on their own um, or even a colleague that you feel safe with uh, having the discussion on maybe how to go about seeking some help. I just highly encourage Encourage that you reach out because we're out here um, and we're here to help. Yeah, and I would say uh, really encourage people to because you're right. I think Sam, I think that you said it's people make choices, and so do something every day. That thing may be to make that call to your legal uh, lawyer's assistance program. That thing may be to ask a colleague out to lunch because you just really need to talk to someone. 
that thing may be just to take a moment and breathe just to close your eyes go into a quiet space and feel yourself breathing know that you are actually taking air in and letting air out and it sounds like a very simple thing but it is something that most of us don't stop in the middle of the day to do and when we do that it literally does take us from that fight or flight if we just allow ourselves to notice the breath for a while into a calmer state and if we allow ourselves to do that a couple of times a day it can make a difference and so just one thing that could be your thing maybe your thing is not eating lunch at your desk today i'm going to take it and go someplace else away from my work to eat lunch one one thing every day do for yourself that's great how about you ashlyn I love those. Um, yeah. So one of the things that kind of came to me as we were talking is um, just the idea that um, it's okay to have to practice how to care for yourself. Um, and it doesn't come naturally in, and we're not necessarily taught it as well early on in our careers as uh, I think we should be, right? I think identifying mm-hmm. law schools is a way to teach self-care. Self-care doesn't always look the same for everyone. You know, you know, you see like a, a self-care bubble bath and then you're going to be healed and that just isn't going to cut it for me. But um, it takes practice and not the thing that you choose one day may not work the next day, but to really lean in and uh, figure out ways that you can grant yourself even just a little bit of care, uh, put the mask on yourself so that uh, you can get back to the other things that you're, you're pouring into for sure. No, that's really good. Um, I think mine for today is, uh, is be a friend to somebody. Um, there's a lot of people that are hurting and they're stuck in a place where the problem seems overwhelming and it's, it's too big for them and they need somebody to come alongside them and help. Um, you know, take, take 10 minutes, take 15 minutes and, uh, cause those people probably aren't going to feel safe talking to you if they're in an environment that has created that kind of dynamic in the first place and think about some of these warning signs that folks might be experiencing and just kind of look through your friend list, look through, you know, the, the list of attorneys, the list of support staff at your firm and think, okay, you know, who on this list is exhibiting some of these things? This is a person who's been working an insane number of hours. This is a person who's been dealing with, um, you know, so much secondhand trauma from so many different things. They've been put in all of these situations. How can I be available to them? How can I help create a safe space for them where they're going to feel like they can take that next step towards health? Um, and, and be that, be that friend that that person needs be available to them. Um, so, uh, that's, that's my thought for today. Um, thank you everybody for joining us. So grateful that you wanted to be a part of this conversation with us today. Um, today's episode, we've, we've tried to go in a little bit more depth about how the law is breaking people. I mean, this is such a big topic. Um, it's such an enormous challenge. Um, but it's one that I'm really grateful that, um, we get a chance to share, share some thoughts on that hopefully will help, um, folks become more aware, become more motivated and hopefully more helpful, more, more helpful, more hopeful, um, about, uh, ways that they can address and tackle this. Um, please join us on our next episode as we go in more detail um, about how the law, the traditional approach to the law is, is broken. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day.